We are going to find ourselves in Matthew chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 3. That's where we're going to be landing. If you don't have a Bible, there are some located again in those same seat pockets in front of you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible at all and you want one, congratulations, you just got a new Bible. So take that home with you. That's uh, another gift from us to you. Uh, if you're technological, you can get on your idle phone and you can type in Matthew chapter 3 and you can uh, find it right there. But as we uh, head this direction, let me just uh, remind you uh, by way of intro that Matthew is writing this gospel account to a predominantly Jewish audience. So we talked about each one of the different gospels looking at Jesus from a different angle or a different aspect. Uh, Matthew is writing his to a Jewish audience, or you might say church folks, right? He's not writing this to people who would have no idea or knowledge of God. These are people that had knowledge, but what they lacked was wisdom, which we talked about last week. Wisdom is knowledge applied. So the, the reason behind him writing this is that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. This long-awaited uh, Mashiach is the word in Hebrew, or Christo in the Greek, which is where we get our word Christ. And this isn't his last name, like some people might think. I thought until I was in my 30s, his first name Jesus, last name Christ. But in fact, uh, his first name speaks to his mission statement, that Jesus is Yahweh is salvation. His, uh, the second word isn't his last name, but instead his title, which means the anointed one. And so as Jesus is the anointed one, this anointing would be something that they would do for three different uh, groups of people or three different offices, we might look at it in this way. It would be first for a prophet and then for a priest and then for a king. So they would anoint all these three different uh, offices, and yet they were three very distinct groups and only one person would ever fulfill all three of these uh, different offices, and that would be the Messiah, none other than uh, Jesus. And so as uh, Jesus is the only one to fulfill these things, this takes us to our next point of introduction, and that is the key word in the book of Matthew, in the gospel of Matthew, is the word fulfill. That if he is to be the Jewish Messiah, he must fulfill prophecy. And not just a little bit, he must fulfill it entirely and completely. And so we're going to look at additional fulfilled prophecies. But as we go, I just want to remind you, or maybe tell you for the first time, because I'm not sure I told you this to begin with, uh, that Matthew is not written chronologically. It's not written in a numeric fashion. It's instead written topically. So Matthew's writing for the purpose to convince us that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. So the topics he chooses and the way he chooses to tell them are all to point back to this very fact that he is the Messiah. And so what we're going to find is while we started with his genealogy, he has to have the right family lineage, uh, that then we jump to his birth. Now we're going to immediately jump to Jesus as a 30-year-old man. And so you're going to see uh, flyover territory uh, that we can see more detail in in the account of Luke. So Matthew chapter 3 is where we're going to be. Let's pick up in verse 1 and we'll go down to verse 6 to start off with. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John himself was clothed, clothed in camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. 
Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And so we are introduced this morning to a character called John the Baptist. And we might ask right off the bat in verse 1, who is this John the Baptist there in the wilderness? Well, what we find is in Luke's account, he gives us far more details that John was actually a family member of Jesus. He was Jesus's cousin. And he was also of a miraculous birth of his own. And so there in Luke 1, what we find is an introduction to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Now, Zacharias was a priest, a Levite. And so as a Levite priest, he had the job, the duty of once a year, they would go and serve for an entire week there in the temple in Jerusalem. So it wasn't a constant every day the Levites, uh, the same group was in the temple, but they would take turns. They would go in rounds. And this happened to be the particular week for Zacharias to be there in the temple. And he had been given the honor to be able to present incense before the Lord. This is uh, the picture of prayers being lifted up to the saint, from the saints up to God. So Zacharias is there ministering in the temple, and as he's doing this and he's, he's presenting the incense to the Lord, uh, he is visited by the angel Gabriel. That's probably a shocking kind of thing for Zacharias. Wasn't, wasn't planning on showing up to, that, uh, to work that day and meeting an angel. And the angel Gabriel tells him that he and his wife are going to have a child. Now, this might not strike us immediately as surprising, except that uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth were, uh, they were old. They were far past the age that they should be having children. And so it was rather surprising because they, they, they also had never been able to have children. This is something that they had prayed about for years and decades, and they'd never been able to have a family. And so Gabriel comes with this tremendous blessing, and yet uh, Zacharias doubts it. He has some questions. Are you sure about this? Remember, Lord, we're, we're too old for this. And so because of that, uh, Gabriel tells him what's going to take place, and he says, as a sign, you're not going to be able to speak. You're going to leave here, but you're not going to be able to utter any words until the child is born. And he also gives him one other command, that his name is to be John. And so if we fast forward in the story, we see that Elizabeth, his wife, does in fact become pregnant. She's around six months pregnant, and she's visited by her young cousin, a young lady named Mary. And she comes into the house because she's got some big news of her own. She's also been visited by the angel Gabriel, who tells her that she is with child, but not from a man, instead from the Holy Spirit. But she has just found this information out, and no doubt she's scared. And thankfully, the Lord's provided her a cousin who she can relate to, she can talk to, a trusted place she can go and say, look, I'm pregnant, I'm engaged, it's not his, this is a big deal, right? And so she comes into the house where Elizabeth is at. And what we're told in Scripture is that this young John the Baptist that's in the womb actually flips for joy. So the Holy Spirit comes upon her and the baby in her womb, uh, he's not just a, a fetus, right? He, he's in there flipping around. He's, there's life there. And so we see from early childhood, even before their birth, there's a connection here for John and Jesus. Now, eventually, Elizabeth actually has the child, and as she has a young baby, John, her family is all there, and his family is all there. And, and the question comes up, what are you going to name the baby? Now, this is typically the job of dad, but remember, dad can't speak. And so, Elizabeth said his name's to be John. Uh, nobody wants to listen to Elizabeth because, again, this is dad's job. 
And John was not a family name. Remember when we looked at the lineage of Jesus, we talked about there's no Jesuses anywhere in his family tree. And so it was controversial. So they said, you know what, we're just going to name him Zach Jr. Zach Jr. seems like a way better name for him. And so Zacharias comes in at this point and he writes down on a tablet, his name is John. And so at that point in time, he's able to speak and he's able to praise the Lord. His tongue is loosed. And what we see is the graciousness of God on this family, which just so happens to be John's name. Yahweh is gracious. And so we see the graciousness of God taking place here in the family of Zacharias and Elizabeth to give them a child and then to see uh, these, these prophecies fulfilled. So then continuing on as we look at verses uh, 2 through 6, what we see is... Uh, John is an interesting character. I'm sure when Gabriel came to say, you're going to have a boy, and he's going to be this great figure, he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah, that they probably didn't count on him being uh, this exactly. We're told here in Scripture that he wore camel's hair, and he had a leather belt, and he ate locust and honey. But what we, before we get into that, I want to just remind you that in Luke 1, uh, Zacharias is told he is to be a Nazarite from birth. Now, this might not mean a lot to us, but this was actually an Old Testament vow that had three different parts. First of all, they were never supposed to cut their hair. Uh, secondly, they were never supposed to come into contact or uh, drink anything to do with grapes. So no wine, no grapes, no grape salad that my wife likes to make, nothing from the vine was supposed to enter into their body. And then thirdly, they weren't supposed to touch any uh, dead things. And so if you showed up a little early to live on the lawn, you would have saw my oldest son, Will, and I out here scooping up a squirrel out of the middle of the road. That would have prohibited me from being a Nazarite. I also uh, didn't want to do it, but I didn't want to show my young son that I was a little squeamish about scooping up a squirrel. So anyway, that's off the topic. But what we see out of uh, John the Baptist is he's uh, been given this Nazarite vow from birth. This was typically a vow people would take for like a year, six months. This wasn't a birth thing. Actually, uh, this reminds us of another character that was given a similar vow after a similar meeting with an angel. That would be one Samson. So we think about Samson and his story. The reason he grew his hair out was because he was a Nazarite from birth. Now, it wasn't just the long hair that would have made him an odd-looking figure, but also his dress, his attire. He wore camel fur. Now, there's a lot of fashions that come and go in our world. The bell-bottoms are in, bell-bottoms are out. Hip-huggers are in, hip-huggers are out. I don't know if tight-rolling will ever come back again. I feel like I should start that. Maybe I could bring that back, bring us back to junior high. But some of these fashions go in and out. But you know what never comes back in fashion? Camel fur. Camel fur has never been cool. It's never going to be cool. And in fact, we've, we've got John the Baptist here. He's not trying to be the cool guy. The, it's actually very uncomfortable, itchy kind of a fur. They're, they're dirty, nasty animals. And so what we're reminded of with, with John is he was not meant to be comfortable in his own skin. He didn't want to be comfortable on this earth because he knew he had a way bigger purpose to serve. And then also with the locust eating. He ate locust and honey, not on most of our diets, right? We're not looking to leave here today. I like a biscuit and some honey, not so much locust and honey. Uh, but here's John. His diet is simple. Everything about him is simplistic and all focused and devoted to the Word of God. Which brings me to the next point is that it's widely believed he was 
and Essene. That's a group of people who were dedicated to the Word. And what they would do is they would, they would transcribe, they would, they would copy down the Word by hand. There were no printing presses. And so the only way the Word could be transferred from one place to the next is meticulously by hand copying the Word of God down onto papyrus or pieces of leather. And so there was a whole group there located around the Dead Sea in this Judean mountains. And, and this uh, group of Essenes were dedicated to copying down the Word of God. Now, how is that important? Well, uh, one of the biggest uh, victories for the Bible, not as if the Bible has to stand up for itself, but all the naysayers that say that the Scriptures have been diluted over the years and that the Hebrew Bible wasn't fully intact or were completely blown away in 1947 when they're uh, in this Judean area in the Dead Sea, they're in the caves, a group of Bedouins find uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. They thought they were just pieces of leather. They couldn't read ancient Hebrew. And so when they uh, took them in, they were hoping to get shoes made with these pieces of leather, only to find out uh, archaeologically one of the greatest finds uh, of our time. And so in this, I put a picture of, of this down in the bottom right. One of the scrolls that was discovered was the Isaiah scroll. And so this is there in the museum in Jerusalem, a 33-foot-long scroll that's the entire book of Isaiah there in the center of the museum of the book is what they call it. And so a very cool thing that people like John the Baptist very well could have been those that described this word down. And so speaking of Isaiah, this fulfillment of prophecy we see from Isaiah here, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which says, He will be the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so this makes John the forerunner to Jesus. So what's a forerunner, right? The forerunner, kings would have forerunners oftentimes, and they had a couple jobs. One, they would make the king's path straight. In a very literal sense, they would go before the king and they would smooth out the path because there wasn't a lot of suspension in the chariots in those days. King doesn't need to be jostled around back there in his chariot. And then secondly, make them straight, right? The kings don't like hairpin turns. They've got their cappuccino. They don't want it spilled when they're driving through in their chariot. And so a forerunner would go to make sure that the path was straight. And then they would declare that the king was coming. This would give people an opportunity to be prepared, right? We all like a little bit of heads up before company shows up, right? It gives us a chance to tidy up the house. Let's get things together. Men, it gives you a chance to get your underwear picked up, right? Stop doing that. So it gives us a chance to tidy things up a bit. And this was the reason that John is called a forerunner. He's saying, uh, get prepared. And in fact, he had a very unique message. In verse 2, what he says is, repent for the kingdom of, hand, of God, excuse me, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this word repent, what does this mean? Well, it, it sounds like a scary word, but, but what the actual definition of repent or repentance is a change in mind that leads to change in action. And so his message is just this, to repent, to change your mind, which should lead to a change in action. It's very different than remorse. Remorse is, I feel bad that I'm in trouble. Repentance is, I feel bad and I'm going to do something about it. It's a change in action. And the message isn't, though, repent, you're a bunch of sinners, you're all going to hell. Right? That's what maybe we would expect sometimes in church. We're getting the hellfire and brimstone message. Repent, you're going to hell if you don't. Right? Instead, his message is, repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. So at the time of the fall, 
uh, prior to sin entering the world, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of earth were actually one. Do you understand that? They were overlapping dimensions, is kind of a way to put it. They were all there in existence at the same time. God would walk with Adam in the cool of the day. So they had this relationship. But because of sin, these two kingdoms were split apart. And so what John is saying is, your kingdom is getting ready to get invaded by the kingdom of heaven. That heaven is actually going to come and dwell on the earth. Now this message of repentance is one that we can track scripturally that we see not just with John the Baptist, but the first message that Jesus delivers. We'll get to it here in just a couple weeks. Chapter 4, verse 17 of Matthew, he starts with, repent. You got it. Next we see the disciples as they're sent out to, to share the message, the good news, with all the communities of Jerusalem and Judea. What's the message that they go bring to people in Mark chapter 6, verse 12? Uh, repent. I think we're seeing a pattern here. Peter, in the book of Acts, he gives the message of repentance there on the day of Pentecost. And then Paul, in Acts chapter 14, repent. And so we see this repeated message that begins with repentance. And the reason for that is that without repentance, all the words are futile. That without change, we're really just wasting our time. So it begins with repentance because God is actually after a change in our lives. He's looking for a change in things. And, and in fact, uh, I put up there Romans chapter 12. This is what the Apostle Paul says. And this is really what we're looking for, what we're praying for. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes this. He says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so we see this call to repentance, this call to change. And, and what we find is that changed hearts lead to transformed lives and then renewed minds. So if you wonder why we continue to, to think the same way and act the same way, it's because there's no transformation taking place on the inside. And so this is the call to repentance from John the Baptist. All right, back, back to our text at hand. Let's continue on as we see uh, here in verse 7. We'll go down through verse 12. Oh, excuse me. We'll, go, we'll look at baptism. Wait a second. Yes, we'll look at baptism. So the question becomes, why baptism? So here's John. He's coming to baptize people. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around him went out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And so John is, is performing this act of baptism. And I want to just start by saying baptism is not a Christian ritual. It is because we've adopted it, but it actually is based in Judaism. We have a Judeo-Christian faith. And in Judaism, it's called a mikvah. And what they would do is they would have these ritual baths and they would actually completely immerse themselves and come out. And symbolically, what it was to point to is that a person has decided they want to follow closer to God. Now, typically, this is done for Gentiles. They decide they want to become a Jew. And so uh, as they are converted to Judaism, one of those uh, traditions that they would have them do is they would perform a mikvah. They would dip themselves, fully submerging, putting away the old man, coming back out of the water as a symbol of a decision to change. Now, baptism for us is similar to this because it is not for salvation. It is an outward sign of an inward change. 
It's an outward way to show the world I've decided that my life is going to be changed. I've given my life over to Jesus. So inside, I'm a new creation. I might look the same as I always did, but inside, uh, things are changing. So it's an outward way to display, to show this off. And it's also a way that we can relate to Jesus. Now, in Acts uh, chapter 8, what we see here in this story that I'll give you a, a quick overview is we see Philip. Uh, he's one of the disciples, and he's uh, having this awesome ministry in Jerusalem, and God tells him, you know where I need you to go? Go to Gaza, which is just a complete disaster of an area. God sends him to Gaza, away from this awesome ministry that he's having, and as he gets there, he comes upon a man, an Ethiopian eunuch of all things, who's riding in a chariot, and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. And as he's reading, he's not understanding the book. And so in verse 35 of chapter 8, Philip opened his mouth and began at this scripture there in Isaiah, and he preached Jesus to him. Now, can you imagine this? God sends you to Gaza, and he says, hey, you see that chariot riding by with an Ethiopian eunuch? I want you to go run and jump onto that. Like, that's some kind of faith that Philip has just to jump into a moving car as it's going down the road and then start talking to a guy about Jesus. So this is what happens here in Acts chapter 8. He then proceeds to preach Jesus to him from Isaiah. And in verse 36, he says, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And then verse 37, Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so right there, they pull off the side of the road. We don't know what this body of water looks like. I usually joke and say it might have just been a mud puddle. But it didn't matter the location. What mattered was the belief. That belief was the activator. The outward sign of that belief, the sign of the change that this man has already said, I want to experience this, was the baptism. Now for John... He is baptizing in a particular area here in Israel called Bethbara. And Bethbara means the house of crossing. So anytime you see Beth in a Hebrew name, it always means house. And uh, this is the house of crossing. So this is the place where it's believed that uh, Joshua brought the children of Israel out of the wilderness and they crossed into the promised land. And this is the spot where John is baptizing. Now, it might seem to you like a really awesome place to get baptized, but uh, I, I searched and searched through my pictures of time in Israel for a picture of Bethabara, and it turns out I have none. And I have none because it is really, really not awesome. It is ugly. It's grown up in weeds. On the other side of the Jordan River, there were, there were Jordanian guards with automatic weapons, and on our side, there were Israeli guards with automatic weapons, but it was just brown, dirty water. There was no reason anybody would want to get baptized in this place. And yet, for these Jewish people, they were flocking out to this wilderness place to John the Baptist to be baptized. Now, for the Jews, this was an odd thing because remember I told you for a mikvah, this was typically people that were Gentiles that got baptized, not Jews that got baptized. They were already believers. They didn't need to be baptized. And so uh, this is why it caused such a stir for the people. But what the reason I wanted to point that out to you is that they were attracted to God being up to something. He was up to something different, 
something was changing people as they came back from visiting this crazy camel hair covered locust eaten guy in the wilderness something was changing about people and so i bring all that up to say that there is an attraction to change lives so if we want to be a, a church that that reaches the community and is out there we can do lots of events out in the yard and we can plaster stuff all over facebook but but here's the reality what will attract people to church is change lives. Transformation will be the thing that attracts people. When, when it's the same you, but it's not the same you, that's the thing that's attractive. And, and when I was praying for the, the church plant and we were coming uh, you know, from Farmington to here and, and not knowing what God was going to do, I said, Lord, what's a word you'd give me? Just a word that I can ponder on and think about and, and what, what would you possibly give? And I was thinking... Some like an awesome word like explosion or I'm going to blow this thing up. It's going to be on fire. Something like that. That's what I was thinking that he would give me. And instead he gave me purity. I'm like, oh boy, that's going to be hard to preach. Purity though. And what he said was, I want to see my bride purified. I want to see my bride, the church, purified. Now, that doesn't mean legalism and all the rules and all those kind of things be put into place. I don't want to confuse that. But what God is up to here and what he wants to see happen is he wants to see his bride come to know him in a relationship, in, in a deeper way. And so uh, this is the thing that will attract people to the church. It'll, it'll be the, the thing that makes the difference. All right, so continuing on then in verse 7. But when... He saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism. He said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so what we see is now John is beginning to get some notoriety. This uh, baptisms out in the middle of the wilderness were, were causing a bit of a stir because there weren't just a few people coming to get baptized. Folks were coming by the thousands out to the middle of the desert to be baptized. And so uh, that being the case, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they go out to check things out. Now a little bit of background on the Pharisees and the Sadducees is they were two different uh, groups in religion. You could almost look at them like political groups. You've got the, the Pharisees on the far right. They were conservative legalists. They called themselves the fence of the law. They were going to stand up for everything that the law of Moses was all about. And then on the other side, you've got the Sadducees. They were the liberal materialists, right? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles, which is why they were so sad, you see. Sorry, it's actually part of the job. You have to make that joke. Like, it has to be done right there. So anyway, these are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as groups, they hated one another. 
They were constantly in opposition to each other, and there was only one thing throughout Scripture that they agreed on. They hated Jesus. They agreed on that. Nothing else could they agree or come together on but, but this one thing. They hated Jesus. Things were being disrupted in their little political and religious world. So what we see is John then addressing these people, and you, and you notice with me, he didn't address them in the kindest of ways. He said, uh, brood of vipers is actually how he called them with an exclamation point. So I think he maybe just yelled this thing out to these guys. So never has there been a compliment that, hey, you bunch of snakes. So that's essentially what he's saying. Hey, you guys are a bunch of snakes. Now that's interesting because to everybody in the outside world, they looked at them like these guys are the religious elite. They've got it going on. I mean, they are dressed like they got it going on. They have got all the words of Scripture down. Right? They're the fence of the wall. You don't talk to these guys in this way. These guys are the religious elite. And yet, here's what we find is God is never concerned with the outside appearance. He is always concerned with the heart. And by way of just going through this scripturally, I'll turn with you back to, to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And this is the story of uh, Israel as they have decided in the previous generation that they want a king. So they go to God, they go to Samuel, they say, listen, Samuel, we need a king to be like all the other nations. Now, originally, God wanted to be their king. He wanted them to be a theocracy, ruled by God. It's how he viewed Israel. But they wanted to be like everyone else, and so they picked for themselves a king, and they picked an awesome-looking guy. He was handsome. He was tall, probably 6'4", six, 6'5", six, from the tribe of Benjamin, named Saul. The problem was he didn't have a heart for the job. And so Saul continually has issues after issue, and he was a very remorseful guy. Saul felt really bad for lots of things that he did, but he never repented. And so it finally got to the point where God said, look, I let you pick a king, now I'm going to pick a king. And he tells Samuel to go to the house of Jesse in this little town of Bethlehem, and he says, go there, and I'm going to select a king from the sons of Jesse. And so he, uh, Samuel arrives in Jesse's house, in Bethlehem, and he has Jesse begin to march his sons out one at a time. He starts with the oldest, and he works his way down from there. And he begins in verse 6. And so it was when they came that they looked, that he looked, this is Samuel, looked at Eliab, and he said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab must have been one good looking dude, right? He was, he was big, he was buff. He's like, This must be it. This is the next king. And yet, what God says, in verse 7 is what I wanted to know. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so, uh, rejected. One son after another son, rejected. Rejected. God's looking for the right heart until he gets to the seventh son and still rejected. So Samuel has to say, hey, uh, Jesse, you got any more boys? Because we're kind of out of people here. Jesse's got one young son out with the sheep, 15-year-old boy wandering around out there on the hillside. And so they bring this young man in, and this is what God says in verse 12. And so he sent and brought him in. He was ruddy and bright-eyed, and good-looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. And this is young King David. 
our first introduction to David the king, and God looking upon his heart, not concerned about the physical appearance. And now we look at the life of David, and we might have some questions, right? We look at, actually, if you look at the life of David and you hold it up against the life of Saul, you could, you could make a pretty good argument that Saul didn't mess up nearly as badly as David. I mean, you're talking about murder, adultery, deceit, all these things. This is on David's resume. But what we find as we journey through the Psalms is that where Saul struggled to be repentant, David was a fantastic repenter. I mean, he could lay down some repentance. He was flawed, just like you and me, but he was repentant. And so, what? back to the text, what we see is uh, John the Baptist is questioning the fruit that's produced from these Pharisees and these Sadducees. He's questioning their hearts, right? He's looking at the fruit of their lives and goes, look, look outside you look fantastic. But, but what we actually see being produced, there's something completely different. And what I wanted to mention is how do we know what's in our heart, right? How do we know what's even in our own heart? And we're called to be fruit inspectors. We're called to look at the fruit in our own lives. All right, so a good tree can't produce a bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. An apple tree can't make oranges, no matter how hard it squeezes, right? It's never going to pop out an orange. And so when we look at our lives, we have to look at this from the aspect of a fruit inspector. What is actually being produced? Now then, verse 11, John goes on to say something interesting. He says that he's not even worthy to, to hold the sandals of Jesus. Now this you know, sounds kind of a funny thing to say, but in their culture, it was not only taboo to touch someone's feet, you just you didn't even do it. Even servants didn't do this. The lowest of the low were the ones that had to touch feet. Now, uh, for one thing, touching feet even now is kind of creepy. Like, I don't want any of y'all touching my feet. It's just weird. But in this day, they're wearing sandals all the time. They're probably stepping in dirt and mud and camel poop. And I got to believe for John the Baptist, the guy that didn't cut his hair, he probably didn't have the best hygiene. Bro's probably got some B.O. and some nasty feet going on. So this is what he's talking about. I'm not even worthy to touch nasty sandals when it comes to Jesus. Now, bring all that to Jesus in John 13. What's he do there in the upper room before he goes to his death on the Passover? He washes every one of their feet. He's not afraid to get down and get dirty and wash the feet of those that he loves. Now, all this being said, what we find is that until uh, Jesus is baptized, I want to just point this out, he did not perform any miracle, no great teaching, none of it happened without the Holy Spirit. And so what John is calling for is, is he's mentioning his baptism by water, but there's another baptism to take place. He's saying that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so I want to just take a minute to talk about relationships with the Holy Spirit. This is something that can be mysterious and hard for us to, to grasp. And so I want to I lay it out in, in a clear and simple way that in the Greek, there are three different prepositions that are used for relationships that we have in the Holy Spirit. The first preposition is para. And what it means literally is just alongside. And so for every person, for every person that draws breath, they have the Holy Spirit alongside them, guiding them, directing them, always towards 
the need for a Savior. Always towards Jesus. We might think of it as that little voice on our shoulder telling us right, wrong, right, wrong, should do this, shouldn't do this. This is, this is the Holy Spirit actually in this uh, relationship, this para alongside that he comes alongside us. And I bring all that up to say that, that he can, though, be ignored. I don't know if any of you ever ignored it. Me too. Yeah, you don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. But he can be ignored. And in fact, he can be ignored so much that, that he is almost unheard. This is what we call blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, right? The unforgivable sin is a, the continual ignoring of the Holy Spirit in our life to the point to where the person ends up where God never wanted him to be. In hell, right? And so I bring that up to say that no one ever accidentally went to hell. It's always a choice. Like it's never like, whoops, look like I ended here. I thought I was going to be in the other place. Every person has made a choice. Love always demands a choice, right? God is such a gentleman. He will never force us into a loving relationship with him. Because the reality is forced love isn't love at all. There's another word for it. I'll spare you that word. Most of you probably know what it is. It gets you 20 to 25 in prison, right? This is not the kind of love that God wants us to experience. But the reality is no one ever accidentally ends up in hell. It's a decision that's made. Now, the second relationship is the preposition en or in. It literally means within. So at the point of salvation, when we say, I want Jesus to be in my life. I want you to come into my life and dwell within me that the breath of God is what he actually gave them in John chapter 20, verse 22. He breathed upon the apostles and he said, now receive the Holy Spirit. And so at that point, they received the Spirit of God actually in them. Now up to this time, this had been a great mystery. No one had had the Holy Spirit within them. Even Old Testament figures, they were operating without Jesus actually being within them. And so at this time, they're able to receive the Holy Spirit to dwell within them. This is why when John addresses uh, the church at Colossae and Colossians, he says, I'm going to tell you a mystery. It's Christ in you. It's the hope of glory. That as believers, you have Christ actually dwelling within you, now operating with you on a daily basis. It's a beautiful thing. The third preposition in Greek is epi. And what it literally means is coming upon. And so, uh, this is also called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This coming upon, this, this flooding of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, prior to his ascension, in verse 8, this is what he tells the apostles. He says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall become Witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So there's that word. It shall come upon you. Now, at this point in time, when the Holy Spirit comes down upon these men in the next chapter of Acts, they are able to do some powerful things. For Peter the Apostle, he, he goes from being scared to death and denying Jesus, saying, I don't even know who he is. I'm denying even knowing him. To now, he's standing out front. He's boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. Right? There's a power here. The, the word Jesus uses is interesting. Enough Greek probably for the day, but one more. The word power is dunamis in the Greek. It's where we get our word dynamite. It's not just a little bit of power. It's dynamite power. And it's to be used for a specific purpose. It's not to be used like Star Wars where we go around zapping people. 
Because there's times if Jesus gives me power, I'm looking to zap some people. I'm looking to just wipe you out, wipe you out. Enough of you, drive through window person that didn't get me all my chicken nuggets. Bam! That's not what it's for, right? It's for, it's so that we shall be witnesses. And what we see as, as Peter receives this power in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, he gives this unbelievable message. 3,000 people are saved that day. The church goes from 120 to 3,000 in one day. Now then, lastly, I want to point out, because I hate to, hate to miss this chance to talk about fire in church. That's exciting. Uh, there's a mention of He will come with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, fire is one of these things uh, that can have uh, two different effects in our life, right? Fire in my fireplace warms things. It, it could provide food. It can boil water. It's beautiful. It's lovely for the whole family to enjoy. Fire in my living room is a far different deal. Then I'm calling the state farm guy with the khaki pants and the red shirt, right? Not nearly as enjoyable way to spend Christmas as warming ourselves by the fire. And fire can be the same way in our lives, right? Fire can either warm us, it can provide life, and, and, and it, can, it can purify us, or it can utterly consume us, right? And so that's the, this is the fire that John's talking about. It, it, it can do the same things, and yet uh, they're, they're the same fire, but it can have two very different results. That's what I'm trying to get at. All right, continuing on in verse 13 through the end of the chapter, we see, and then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you and you are coming to me. John's not that excited about baptizing the Son of God. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. And when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased. And so what we see to begin with in verse 13 is John is reluctant, right? He is reluctant, and can you blame him? I mean, this is the Son of God that he's now uh, getting ready to baptize. So he's, he's already saying, I'm not worthy to candle, carry your shoes around, let alone to baptize you. But, but here's the reality. Jesus came to partake, to be an example for us so that he could relate to us in every imaginable way. He doesn't want to leave anything between us and him. And so this is an opportunity for him to participate in the same activity that we can participate in. And, and also it signifies that he who knew no sin became sin for you and I. So he came to relate to us in every possible way. This is why it's a wonderful thing for us to do, to, to participate in. We can, we can be like him. We can show off what he's done for us through baptism. Next, what we note in verses 16 through 17 is that the kingdom of God is literally all present in this spot. Not very many times in Scripture do we see Father, Son, and Spirit all present in one group of text. But here we see the Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus the Son, and then the Father speaking. And the Father speaks, and, and what does He say? He says three things that I want to point out as we wrap up today. He begins by saying, uh, he is my son, right? He says, this is my beloved son. So first he says, this is my son. He's my rightful heir to the throne. God is confirming 
Jesus' right to the throne. Secondly, he calls him his beloved. So he's saying, I love him. He's my son, and like a dad, I love this boy. I love my son. And then thirdly, he says, and I am well pleased in him. I am well pleased. Now, I think this is important to note because Jesus has not, up to this point, done a single thing for the Father. He hasn't performed a miracle. He hasn't taught anyone. He hasn't done anything other than the last 30 years he's grown up in Nazareth. He has done nothing. And yet what the Father says is, I am well pleased with him. Now then, one last place in Scripture. John chapter 1, verse 12. This is what John says in verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For as many who believed, they shall become children of God, sons and daughters. Now go back to the final text here. And understand, this is what God has to say about those who believe in Him. He is my son. He is my daughter. I love you. Right? That's something we learned down in Sunday school, but do we let it sink in? I love you. And then thirdly, and this is maybe the most important takeaway for us to have today, I am well pleased in you before you ever do a thing for me. You see, we get it so mixed up sometimes. We, we get it in our head that we must work. We have to provide. We have to do something for Jesus. Surely all this sin, all this negative I've done, surely all these things, I have to do something for God to be pleased with me. Some way I have to, if I can just work hard enough, if I could just plant enough churches, if I could just give up enough things, He'll be pleased in me. But the reality is, even before Jesus does anything, God says, I'm pleased. That from the moment of salvation, from the moment of belief, that's all it takes. Positionally, we are saved. And from that point forward, we get to serve Him. If you can grasp this, it's going to change everything in your Christian walk. That you do not have to do a single thing for Him to be pleased. But instead, you get to do these things. I get to go out and go, God, you, you love me this much. Now I get to go serve you. I get to go grill hot dogs or play music or welcome people in or make slushies. Whatever the case may be, I get to do things. I get to go help the homeless guy down the street. I don't have to do that in order to secure my salvation because the reality is we can never, ever work hard enough to earn this, right? Our righteousness, Isaiah says, are filthy rags. I won't go into exactly what that means. It's not great, I can tell you. It's filthy rags compared to His righteousness. And yet in that, He says, I am well pleased in You. So Heavenly Father, thank You so much. As we ponder on this Scripture and we consider all that You're about, and all that you're up to, Lord, thank you 
for being pleased in us. Boy, we blow it a lot, Lord. I'll admit it. I, I, I hate to count how many times I've blown it this week. And yet, even in the middle of it all, you're well pleased. And so, Father, for those gathered in here this morning and for those watching online, help us to understand this is the case for each of us, that, that you are well pleased. Lord, please take our get-to mentality that we have, this idea that we have to work somehow for your love and for your affection. Lord, please, please help us to see it's a get-to. We don't have to do a thing to earn your love. It's a get-to. So, Father, we lift this time up to you. So very thankful for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.